This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And this is a Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirate Save the Whales with a Robin Mob, a Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good morning, Rob, wherever you may be, because unusually we're recording this episode remotely. I, I'm not looking at you this time. No, no. I, I wonder if our, if our, if our you know, famous uh, rapport and camaraderie, or at least you know, famous to us, will, will be affected by that. <laughs> but, uh, but that's okay. And uh, yeah, mind, mind you, we're, we're not terribly far apart. It's about uh, about 20 kilometres. But uh, anyway, this is, um, as I said, uh, Shenandoah Down Under. The podcast approves that too much CSS Shenandoah is never enough. And if you want to know what that means and you don't yet, then you can go back to episode one. So, um, starting with one of our regular segments, Mob, uh, where are we this week, 150 years ago today? So 150 years ago today, the Shenandoah, as, as you know, has left Melbourne and has been sailing in a pretty much a northerly direction on its way to Alaska. And by now, they are very close to the equator in the Pacific they're coming, uh, approaching what is known as the Gilbert Islands. Ah, but the Gilbert I, I do love the way Wikipedia can make you an instant ex- expert in something. But uh, the, the Gilbert Islands are named by a Frenchman after an, an English captain, which... Um, called, called Gilbert, I'm assuming. Called Gilbert. Now, and again, Michael, I believe you actually know how to pronounce uh, Gilbert Islands in, in the local language. Well, it is now part of the Republic of Kiribati, and Kiribati uh, looks like it's spelt Kiribati, but apparently it's pronounced Kiribati. And, and another thing is that Kiribati is in fact the local translation of, of Gilbert, which, which is a, a little bit strange. So when, when they when they gained independence, they, they didn't you know, use use their own local name for the islands, but perhaps they didn't have one for all of them. But they actually still have the name of an English sea captain just translated into their own language, which, which, which I think is quite nice. So, so there you go. And uh, if you, again, if you if you have a look on a on a certain Wikipedia. Um, the equator actually runs through the middle of those islands. So if you look at the list of uh, the islands in Wikipedia, they start at about longitude three, go down to two, one, then zero, which is about as close to the, which is as close to the equator as you can get, and then they go up again to about two. So they are they are very much across the zero longitude. And uh, there are the northern Gilbert Islands and the southern Gilbert Islands, and I'm not going to. Uh... I'm not going to offer a prize for who can guess why that is so. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yes, the, the CSS Shenandoah, um, now the CSS Shenandoah did not land at uh, the Gilbert Island, so the Gilbert Island probably won't be marking the occasion with a stamp or any any version of the uh, the, the Buccaneers ball. Um, but... Uh, I mean, again, this is a historical podcast. Uh, so while uh, the passing of the Shenandoah through uh, the Gilbert Islands was um, 
We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, fairly uneventful. Um, the the Second World War in the Gilbert Islands was was not at all uneventful. Um, it was it was pretty pretty bloody. Um, the the U.S. Navy um, lost a, um, a an aircraft carrier there, and um, the the invasion of uh, of the island um, the islands uh, over uh, a number of days in uh, November 1943 um, caused uh, yeah, well over a thousand casualties. So it was a, a short but bloody affair, and it also led to one of the, mo- the shortest and most famous declarations of history uh, victory in history, which was of course taken Macon. Yes. Oh, I, can, I only remember Macon Island from um, the game Call of Duty: World at War. There's a there's a cutscene at Macon and a and a scene of it at the very start of the game. Oh, there you go. Well, d- d- does it have a sinking aircraft carrier? No, no. It 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 has lots and lots of shooting of Japanese soldiers and they shoot back. That's about well, it, as far as I, it goes. I, I think I think for about ten days there was a lot of that going on and I, and I think it would have been uh, quite exceptionally nasty. But um, now, now Michael, you, you were telling me before before we went on air that um, uh, there's actually famously an even shorter declaration of victory than Taken Macon. Um, but apparently there are some doubts as to its uh, authenticity. That would be the dispatch that was sent by General Charles Napier when he conquered Sindh. And that was back in the days of uh, the British conquest of of India. Was it the 19th or the 18th century? Putting you on the spot. (laughs) That would be in the 19th century. And what he did was he sent a dispatch, or this is the story, having conquered Sindh which is spelled S-I-N-D-H, he sent a dispatch saying Peccavi, which is Latin for I have sinned. Oh, that, that, is, that is not only very short, but also uh, very, very intellectual. But um, apparently it was not quite so. That was, yes, that was in 1842. And the pun appeared in a... Uh, issue of Punch magazine a couple of years later with a caricature of the general. So that's probably where it originated from. But let's not spoil the story for the sake of the facts because it's a it's an amazingly good pun to send because it it encaptures several issues. One is he captured Sind. Yes. The other is <laughs> he had sinned in the sense that he'd fought a bloody war. And he'd also sinned in that he'd been expressly told not to capture <laughs> sinned. So uh, it was a th- it was a three way pun and uh, quite a quite an entertaining one. Well, I, I have to say, even even taken Macon. Now that that was in fact the first sentence of that communique, and, and there was another sentence. So even taken Macon wasn't uh, wasn't quite as short as uh, as um, it, history has made it out to be. And. There was, of course, uh, another very famous uh, short declaration of victory, which was the Roman one, Vini Vici Vidi. And that, uh, that, that was from 46 BC when Julius Caesar wrote to the Senate saying that he'd uh, conquered a city somewhere. I think it might, have, it might be in modern-day Turkey. That's a, that's, that's a really good one too. Of course, um, I think the Romans didn't pronounce the V, so in actual fact it's weenie, weeky, and weedy, but never mind. 
Yeah, but also, the, I think that's a bit of a, you know, the, Latin's a famously concise language, so that actually, that actually means I came, I saw, I conquered, which which is more like six words and, than, strictly speaking, three. But, um, yeah, it, it is. It is I have sinned or taken, making. Yes, but I, I think I have to say, um, yeah, that, that those those last two definitely win the prize for, for the last two millennium. We, we could leave Julius Caesar with, um, you know, pre-BC. That's but, only uh, if we leave out uh, what the sun had as its headline in the Falklands War, which was gotcha. Uh, that was not an official declaration of victory. That was just the sun uh, being, being the sun. Being gross, grossly offensive, <laughs> as usual. Yes. Anyway, Rob, we should, we should get back to the Shenandoah. So the Shenandoah has come very close to these islands, close enough. They, they were about 8 or 10 miles off the coast of one of these particular islands, They didn't want to go in any closer, probably for navigation reasons. And some natives came out and uh, had a bit of a discussion with them. As Mr Whittle describes in his his journal, one of of their crew could speak the gibberish. Um, Air quotes, air quotes around that. Yes, (laughs) and had a chat to these natives. They were particularly keen, of course, to find out if any ships had been seen, and sadly they hadn't. And Whittle also, um, I think, memorably describes how they were sitting on board these outrigger canoes the way a tailor sits on his table, except with their knees up. You know, that, you'd almost like to call that a simile, except it's not a simile, because um, tailors don't sit with with their feet up on their table. It, it's, uh, this, is, this is why you should leave similes for the professionals, folks. Uh, you know, that amateurs aren't quite up to it, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, sat on their outrigger canoes the way tailors don't. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was nice that he wrote it that way, and uh, he also drew a little sketch of the outrigger canoe, which we don't have in the version of the, uh, the book that we have, sadly. Oh, well, that, that is a shame. Uh, now... Um, uh, we have uh, so that that is where the Shenandoah is now, and I, I do have to say that um, while there's <clears throat> some exciting uh, things coming up, uh, not much more happened in the Gilbert Islands to the CSS Shenandoah than than what we have just uh, just described. But uh, what we have for you in this episode is the second half of our interview with Barry Crompton of the American Civil War Roundtable of Australia Inc. And um, we would like to play that for you. So, 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 Barry, sh- Barry, uh, Michael, shall we? Uh, shall we start the um, the the second half of the interview with Barry, or do you have some uh, further commentary to add about the Gilbert Islands? No, I think we should uh, throw straight to Barry. It was fascinating talking to him about uh, the extensive research he's done about the Shenandoah, particularly its visit to Melbourne. And I hope that we'll be able to have Barry back on again uh, at a later time because we've only just scratched the surface Absolutely, what Barry uh, can share with us about the amazing journey. Okay, um, with no further ado, uh, we'll have the, the second half of our interview with Barry Crompton. And uh, as you will no doubt recall, uh, at the end of the first half of the interview, uh, Michael... Barry and myself were discussing whether the Shenandoah's officers had actively colluded in the recruitment illegally of seamen in Melbourne. You would just kind of think that it would be very hard to hide 42 men on board 
Uh, not a particularly big ship. It's 70 metres long, but yes. And, you know, I'm just wondering if the officers were walking around uh, averting their eyes <laughs> and blocking their ears. Shock horror. Yeah. A lot like, like that scene in uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian where, you know, the, the Romans come round to search and everybody hides under a tablecloth or behind a pot of plant. Yeah, yeah. Very much so, I think that... Uh, but on the other hand, the authorities certainly, they, they made their um, mentions made by sending a, a detachment of uh, of police down to mm. Williamstown and also sending um, a, a detachment of artillery. They didn't actually get any further because, as we all know, um, the Shenandoah was foreign soil and they weren't allowed to go on board. And the captain of the Shenandoah, uh, Waddell, as an officer and a gentleman, absolutely pledged his honour that there were no... <laughs> People uh, on board who shouldn't be there. I, I, I think I think Waddell used his honour to get himself out of a number of tight situations uh, during the voyage of the Shenandoah. So I, I have a supposition, and that is that perhaps Charlie and the other three fellows were like sacrificial lambs to say, um, OK, well, these four were, to our great surprise and shock, discovered on board and we have gotten rid of them. And that was enough to keep everybody on each side satisfied. I've never thought of it that way, but certainly that is a very good supposition that I would uh, support. Mm. It, it was one of these things, I'm sure, that uh, they were caught either way. The, the Shenandoah needed crew members. There were people in Melbourne who would dearly love to sail on board the Shenandoah, but the colonial authorities were making sure that uh, it wasn't going to happen on their watch. And uh, also the US Consul, Mr Blanchard, was... Um, very much keeping that uh, to the forefront of their minds. And he seemed to have been a person of particular renown. He had only been consul in Melbourne uh, three or four years prior to it. Previous consul, James uh, Maguire, uh, although he came from the Massachusetts family who supported uh, merchandise into Melbourne for the gold rush, his parents were from South Carolina and had died during an an epidemic, and he went back to the family in Massachusetts when he was appointed uh, by his father to go out to the colony and um, begin a business there, uh, of which he did for a number of years prior to uh, the Shenandoah arriving. He was the US consulate uh, up until 1861-62, and he did have southern leanings. When the Shenandoah arrived, uh, he was very friendly with the officers of the Shenandoah. He, uh, so he had been removed as the consul at some point earlier. He had been, earlier. but this might have been because uh, of the change of government in 1860 when Abraham Lincoln was elected president. Uh, one, of his, uh, one of his platforms was, was of course, the, uh, he wanted to keep the United States together without secession of the southern states, mm-hmm. but he also wanted to um, make sure that all men were created equal. And it so, was, so how does one get uh, removed? Would have he received a uh, dispatch from, from Washington via ship? Well, the or did Blanchard just show up and say, I'm the new guy? <laughs> the 1860 election, uh, Lincoln got the majority of votes in the northern states and the uh, southern states mainly went to the uh, opposition. Uh, but we know that the abolitionists in the north were very much in favour of Lincoln becoming president and William Blanchard was an editor of uh, abolitionist newspaper in Washington in the 1850s. Uh, his paper, The National Era, uh, was the first to uh, run Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, 
Wow. As a, uh, as a cereal. Ooh. And, uh, and in fact, another one of those odd things is that there's a house in Melbourne that's uh, owned by uh, an English gentleman, uh, Ebden, who uh, paid for the building of, paid for the land that the building of the Melbourne Club is now on. His house in Black Rock in the children's nursery has wallpaper that was made in the 1860s of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yes, well, it, it didn't. It was a massive hit, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It was, and, and so so Blanchard really was a hardcore abolitionist. And I would assume then that he was given the role of United States Consul at after the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1861. It would have taken a fair amount of time for all of these appointments to be rolled over, as they do in every mm-hmm. government. And because William Blanchard arrived in Melbourne about May 1862, so that's 12 months after the Lincoln's election, he left his wife and three children in Washington, Mm D.C., and uh, came to Melbourne. And most of the consul's responsibilities for the first three years while he was here were to uh, look after United States shipping that had arrived, look after United States businesses. There were a number of businesses in uh, Melbourne because of the gold rush, um... There was uh, the fellow who brought out the singer sewing machines. American Stores was uh, run by uh, a fellow Thomas W. Stanford, whose brother was the governor of California. Uh, Freeman Cobb, who ran the Cobb and Co. Oh, yes. coaches. Mm-hmm. He was from Connecticut and he went back to America during the Civil War to uh, serve in the state uh, government. So all these people, they required the services of a consul and uh, there were a number of honorary consuls as well as appointed ones. Blanchard's responsibilities for the first three years probably weren't that onerous. But when the Shenandoah came, he really stepped up and he was the person who hammered the local colonial government to make sure that what they were doing mm. was and We talked about that in, in at some length in our, our last episode and he seemed to be very, very energetic. And I think now that you've uh, told us about the fact that he was the first person to serialise Uncle Tom's Cabin. That really shows that he he probably had a burning zeal to to make sure this ship didn't get on yeah. its way. And he he was uh, he was returned to America the year after the Shenandoah, 1866. He was recalled uh, again. We don't know whether it was due to the fact that his term of appointment was up after Lincoln's death and assassination in April 1865. The new president again would go through all of those consular appointments and possibly replace them with other people. The fellow who re- who replaced uh, Blanchard as consul was a fellow who had been a, a uh, an officer in a West Virginia cavalry regiment in a United States volunteer regiment. So he was, he was replaced War. by another sound fellow then? Yes. But the other thing was that Blanchard wasn't well liked and it could have been that he was recalled due to... Um, whispers that went on behind the scenes by the local businessmen of Melbourne who decided that they didn't want uh, want Blanchard as the consul any further. Oh, OK. And what, what did he, he... We can see that he really got up the nose of the government. Um, in our last episode, Barry, we, we did talk about his, his valiant efforts on the night that the Shenandoah was about to leave, trying to get an affidavit witnessed by a magistrate, and all of them were... Uh, off to dinner, off to, dinner. To, and I'm again doing air quotes to the microphone. Off to dinner, we believe it's off to the pub. Uh, possibly not off to the pub. Again, the uh, the first person that they knocked on the door, I think, might have been Gurner, uh, yes. who was the attorney. Yes, he was a member of the Melbourne Club. 
Uh-huh. Higginbotham, who was another one of the uh, a political giants, was a member of the Melbourne Club. Um, the uh, Premier was a, mem- was a member. And although they may not have certainly turned up to the, to the uh, Melbourne Club dinner the, to honour the officers of the Shenandoah, a vast majority of these people, Superintendent of Police, Captain Standish, was a uh, member uh, of the Melbourne Club. Now, now, now Captain, he came to a sticky end, didn't he? He did. Because he, he, he failed to, to catch Ned Kelly. When, when you mentioned the Cobb & Co coaches before, um, the Cobb & Co coaches are, are still very famous uh, in Victoria because um, they, they were the, the coaches of the, the, the Bush Rangers. They were the stage coaches. They were the stage coaches, and the Bush Rangers like, like to bail them up and, and take all their goals. Stand so, and deliver. So Ned Kelly was a, a very famous outlaw a, a few years after. Was, was 1880s. 1880s, yeah. yeah. So, his, um, and poor old Captain Standish signally failed to capture him, and I believe he ended up um, ended up killing himself. And again, another one of those incidents uh, that's remarkable. Or so, the uh, Cop and Co coaches came to Melbourne at the time of the gold rush because they found that the English coaches weren't at all suitable for the Australian landscape. So they imported um, these coaches from California that had been Canastoga coaches, I th- think they were called. Uh, and went all around New South Wales and Victoria. Of course, uh, there was a TV series in the 1960s with Peter Graves as a, mm-hmm. a Cobb and Co. Called Cobb and Co. Yes, called Whiplash. Whiplash. Oh, I thought it was called. Cool. Yeah. Yes. Well, there, there's still actually a bus company here in uh, and... Melbourne called Cobb and Co. Is that the ori- the original company? It isn't, but they've yeah. taken the name. But right. the fellow who uh, was the coach assistant, the coach master at uh, Ballarat, where the coaches came from Melbourne to Ballarat was uh, Edmund Drayton, who was uh, Brayton, who was the fellow who invited the Shenandoah officers to uh, Ballarat. He was the local representative of the Cobb & Co Company. So yeah. all these people are going round and round in circles. They all know each other. They're all uh, members of the Melbourne Club or they're all of a part of the aristocracy that, that had a lot of information. So I'm sure that Mr Blanchard was knocking at doors that were not open to him. He was getting the bums rush. <laughs> yeah, so he probably didn't know the way we, we did things you know, here. You know, a, a chap talks to a chap and a chap <laughs> works things out with a chap and I think he was probably... Port bit... and coffees. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and in the end, I believe he was told to go and see the water police in Williamstown, which was you know, um, on the other side of Hobson's Bay, which wasn't really helpful. And, and I have this evocative idea of him... Valiantly in a rowboat heading over to Williamstown while the Shenandoah goes past and blows him a raspberry. It probably didn't happen, but I, I, I wish it had. I think, given that I think there, there still is a well, you can still get ferry boats across the bay. He probably would have caught the ferry, but um, but yes, he, he, he certainly certainly was uh, was rather frustrated. So you would you would certainly think that for a lot of uh, Melburnians, the righteous cause of the Shenandoah and the Confederacy was far more affable than the grumpy. Uh, attitude of the United States consul who didn't really hold the same values mm. as those of the Shenandoah. So uh, the Buccaneers ball and uh, Barry was one of the uh, people that went up to the 150th uh, celebration along with Rob and I. We had a delightful evening and it was remarkable that we had the ability to sit almost in the same room next door to the original room or so to have roughly the same amount of people and to dance the night away in crinolines and gowns. And well, the men- well, the ladies were in crinolines and gowns, just to be uh, precise. But yes, it was, a, it was a fantastic evening. It was. And uh, so 150 years ago, the um, representative of Cobb & Co coaches invited them up. 
Mr. Brayton. He did, along with a couple of the other dignitaries. They came down to Melbourne, went on board the Shenandoah within a day or two of the Shenandoah arriving, and invited them up to Ballarat to look at the uh, gold mines and the festivities. Um, they invited Captain Waddell, but as it turned out, the ship was undergoing repairs, and although they couldn't do an awful lot with the repairs that were going on, Captain Waddell remained behind, as did as Lieutenant supposed. Whittle. Yes. Uh, but four, four of the other officers uh, managed to catch the train out of Spencer Street Railway Station via Geelong in those days and up to uh, Ballarat, where they arrived uh, the afternoon of one day, were taken on a site of uh, Lake Winderee, the gold mines, went down the, the gold mines, uh, had another uh, couple of uh, activities that they did, and then uh, the following night... Rob, Rob thinks they must have cuddled a koala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm certain that they must have cuddled a koala. Yeah. I wonder point. if they went panning for gold in um, <laughs> Sovereign Hill. In Sovereign Hill. So uh, I believe, Barry, you've also done quite a bit of research on uh, who were the guests. Of Fortunately, this again, a lot of delving into newspaper reports, and uh, the Ballarat Star newspaper ran the following day a, a list of the 60 people who had uh, turned up to. Uh, yeah to the Buccaneers ball. And again, it, it's very handy to have uh, half a dozen pieces of information by having the local street directory of 1865, by having birth deaths and marriages, by having the Ballarat newspapers. Uh, and you find that the same people who were invited to the Buccaneers ball were also members of the local board of management for the hospital. They were on the, um, they were on the board of the insane... Asylum and the Benevolent uh, Society. They were parts of the um, of the local artillery group that they had and the cavalry corps. Um, the fellow who turned up, uh, the sheriff of uh, Ballarat, who had served in the British Army, his daughter was uh, seen as the loveliest woman in in uh, the ball. Was she the one who tenderly squeezed the No, hair? no, I, I think that, that, young, lady, that, that, that young, young hussy was from yep. Geelong. Oh, so, so okay. she, 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 was, she was at liberty to squeeze an officer's hand because, uh, you know, she, she was out of town. The, the uh, lady who was known as the, the, the uh, beautifulest girl there, uh, within six months she'd married the son of uh, the, uh, of the, of the stockbroker J.B. Weir, uh, Jonathan oh. Henry Weir was living in the same street as this woman or so. They were married several year, uh, several months later or so. One of the other guests uh, became a father two days after the Buccaneers Ball. So his wife didn't arrive at the uh, dinner or so. But you can look through the uh, guest list and you can see almost the same high and mighty. A lot of the people were also involved uh, with the visit of the royal prince two years later when Prince Alfred hmm. uh, arrived in Ballarat and also stayed at Craig's Hotel. Obviously, it's the place to stay. It was. Walter Craig himself uh, had made money. Uh, a lot of them were members of uh, the Ballarat uh, Horse Racing Society or so. Walter Craig had a winner of a Melbourne Cup in mm -hmm. the 1870s. Before, just In fact, uh, it, it won about three months after he died. Um, mm. Mr. Brayton, who invited them up, he was a member of the horse racing club, and the other fellow who was a uh, who was one of the prime movers was also one of the founding members of the, the Victorian um, Victorian VRRC or yes, the racing club. Yep. and they had their first meeting. They had their founding meeting at uh, Craig's Hotel 
Um, so a lot of these people certainly were side by side. You see their names appearing in newspaper articles supporting the local member of uh, parliament and attending all sorts of functions. So the they were thing. the pillars of the, the community up there. They were. Interestingly, my wife, who attended the, the ball, along with uh, Robert's wife in their magnificent crinolines, uh, one of her ancestors was a uh, leading member of Ballarat Society and was the Lord Mayor of Ballarat the year after the ball. And I was, I have to say, somewhat disappointed to not find his name on the list. So could it have been that uh, society up there may have been somewhat polarised? There would have been people pro-Confederate and people anti who would have kept well away? Well, there, there were members of the Melbourne Club uh, who lived and resided in the Ballarat area and some of those were at the uh, Buccaneers Ball. I would think that there probably could have been a situation where society members who might have turned up may have been living in Melbourne of, at that time and the the sheer distance of 70 miles, 100 kilometres was uh, too much just for an overnight uh, a trip up up into Ballarat. So there's a possibility that people who uh, could have been there um, weren't there. Certainly some members of uh, society might have had their noses out of joint, either that they weren't invited or that they couldn't <laughs> <Yeah>. be <laughs> True. fitted in. Well, because, again, um, having seen the original, the original room um, where the ball was held, um, yes, you could get 70 people in there as a pinch, but you know, if, if 20 more wanted to fit in, uh, they, they wouldn't have been able to. So, and in um, those days, of course, it went until 4 o'clock in the morning, which uh, we found out later, I think, possibly because uh, in the times of darkness, you couldn't have got home at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, uh, And, of course, we're looking at early February, so it would have been 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock, the sun would have been coming up, it would have been light until 9 o'clock at night. Yeah, no, no daylight saving in those no. days, of course? Checking the local Melbourne newspapers for the three weeks of the Shenandoah's visit, uh, the Age and the Argus both carried uh, weather reports each each day, and I went through the front page of each newspaper, and the highest temperature that reached in those three weeks of January, February was about 80 at the very most, and the majority of the days were in the 60s. So, so there 80 was certainly... is about 29 degrees Celsius? Yes, uh, through to high teens, early 20s. So there wasn't a, a single day of uh, Stinking heat, hot heat wave as, yeah. as, as Melbourne receives it now. There were a couple of days where there were storms brewing, but certainly in 1865 there were no uh, bushfires, there were no problems with uh, the weather. So really, they, they kind of came at a glorious time. They did find that wearing their heavy woolen uniforms wasn't particularly good, so they did have a summer uniform. Uh-huh. And uh, I would assume as well the uh, 42 Australians, uh, the 42 men who came on board the uh, Shenandoah may have been issued uniforms, but probably would have been uh, doubtful that they would have had that much material available to have made them uniforms over the, the coming mm. Well, of course, they then head head north, and it gets very warm. We were we were looking in uh, Mr. Whittle's journal, and he was complaining vociferously how hot it had uh, it got when they're heading up towards uh, the New Hebrides and Fiji. And after that, of course, it got awfully cold as they went through <laughs> yes. to Alaska. Well, no, no, again, um, so 150 years later, there's um, again when we had a, a, a pre pre interview uh, meeting. Um, uh, the, the, the Sea Shepherd, um, the, I think the, the Steve Irwin, is currently docked at, at Williamstown. And you, you told us um, something that I found, um, found very interesting, 
which was uh, now Captain Paul Watson, uh, the the head of the Sea Shepherd organisation, um, is is a is a very big fan of uh, Captain Waddell and and the Shenandoah, and uh, we've made a few jokes about the Sea Shepherd being pirates recently, and we've been treading a bit carefully on this. But given Paul Watson appeared on his Facebook page in a pirate's uniform the other day, <laughs> saying, "I'm a gentle pirate," uh, I think maybe we could we could we could say that the uh, the, the Sea Shepherd organisation somewhat plays up its semi-piratical leanings. But you informed us, Barry, that um, one of the Sea Shepherd ships was originally going to be called the Waddell. It was. They had received uh, money that they were going to call one of the ships uh, Waddell because it was certainly going to be saving whales. And unfortunately, they received a rather large donation from another source, and the ship that uh, was going to become the Waddell is now the Bridget Bardot. Now, I'm guessing that means that the money came from Bridget Bardot. Mercy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it's a bad thing that the sea ship had got a lot of, uh, a lot of money from Bridget Bardot, but I, I do think it's very sad that there is not a, um, a Waddell as part of the sea ship. And now that they have, uh, they have the Steve Irwin, uh, who, again, I presume he gave them lots of money, the Bob Barker, who I presume gave them lots of money, and, and poor old um, Sam Simon, who, who, who recently died. died. Yes, just, one um, of the creators of The Simpsons. Yes, who, again, I presume gave them lots of money. So... Unless, I think unless an heir of Captain Waddell turns up who's a billionaire, I think perhaps uh, that the chance for one of the Sea Shepherd ships to be called the Waddell uh, might have passed. There but, have um, been three uh, vessels in the United States Navy called the Shenandoah and a, a, a dirigible airship was also named the Shenandoah. I believe there was also a ship called the Waddell. The Waddell, well. and the Waddell uh, was decommissioned in 1990s after serving 20-odd years or so, served in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. The Shenandoah, uh, the third one, I think, uh, served until the 1980s or so and had been in from the 1960s to the 1980s, 1990s. And, of course, memorably, uh, there was a uh, starship in Star Trek also called <laughs> the Shenandoah. <laughs> Well, um, this this has been a fascinating interview, Barry, and I, we could go on all day, but I, I, I think we, we want to save up some subjects, because I think we're going to have our, our version uh, later on in the year of either the long winter or the, the long the long summer evenings where you know, a number of pa- months pass where, where nothing terribly much happens. And, and I think that will be the time when we're in the dog days, when we're going down the rabbit hole, when... Uh, yeah, the, we could have the, the, the philately interview yes. about all the stamps of, of, of the Shenandoah from around the world. And, uh, and I must say that I have been fascinated with the podcast so far. I think that what you are attempting is bringing new information into the Shenandoah's history that the average person is afraid to ask, but you're <laughs> asking those difficult questions. Oh, that's good. You know, uh, another thing that I'd love to cover in a, a later episode would be... Um, and you'd be the ideal person for this, Barry, is to dispel some of the myths. We have a lot of the myths and the a lot of myths that we want to get rid of. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something else that we'll, we'll save up for a, uh, a future date as well. Now, now Barry, I'm getting back to your, your new publication. Now, you said that uh, you've uploaded it, it to iTunes. Dixie Down Under Dixie went Down Under? Uh, last what? weekend onto iTunes. Um, no, no, at what price is this fine volume being sold? US $4.99 for yeah. about 360 regular pages of data and information. Well, that that will, is probably about seven dollars Australian money. So look, um, this um, week. Now, now um, <laughs> one of the things um, uh, we're going to start a campaign on on Shenandoah down under. So, Save so, the Barry Crompton from financial <laughs> institution uh, fund. No, no, no. I, I will. I will get to that, Barry. But. Um, 
Uh, what we'd like is, uh, you know, we get we get quite a lot of listeners through through iTunes, but um, iTunes, you know, it's the Apple monolith. It, it doesn't give you a lot of information back apart from these people. So we'd like to encourage our listeners to come and like us on Facebook. So um, on the Facebook page, we have a page for every episode of Shenandoah Down Under. So if you would like to, if you come and like us on Facebook, um, a random, um, a, a number to be decided of copies of Barry's book will be randomly drawn from people who like this episode, episode 23 of Shenandoah Down Under. And, and talking about episode 23 of Shenandoah Down Under, this has been Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the World with Rob and Mob. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob and thank you Barry. A pleasure. Okay, and ahoy. <laughs> <laughs>